folks, freaks, and fans. Welcome to Crap Beer's only voice of reality. To the podcast with the guts to face failure in the beer industry with a smirk and a grin. To the place where we can share the honest truth of what really happens in the P&Ls and the spreadsheets of America's beer makers. Welcome to How Not to Start a Damn Brewery, the podcast. With each new season of the show, I've encouraged evolution, growth, and a warm embrace with change. Now over 40 episodes in, my guests and I have honed our focus and goals to make you the best you can be in your career. What you're about to experience is season five, 10 interviews with experienced operators that lived right through it. This season's guests will peel back the layers of bullshit and get right to the truth. The truth that the beer publications, the Brewers Association, and of course, those hypey ass breweries that act all successful on social media do not want you to know. That the majority of breweries in the US are not making any money at all and have absolutely no chance of ever doing so. But if you're looking for a roadmap to financial success in craft beer, then you've come to the right place. This season, we'll hear from breweries from Portland to Atlanta, past and present, to help teach you how not to start a damn brewery. During the gold rush, the gold diggers didn't make money. The people who sold the pickaxes and the shovels who once made money. I thought that's what I was doing. I was starting a business that was gonna be useful during this brewery boom. And so, five years later, if you stab Michael Amon, he'll bleed crap beer. He started in this industry as a fan, landed an entry-level distribution job, worked his way up to sales, and then decided to open a brewery. Maybe lucky for him that didn't work out, but instead he went where most brewery owners think all the money in the crap beer industry is hiding, the middle tier. He opened Adina Distributing and set about being the grease that lubed the route from a brewery's fermenter to the customer's face. Adina Distributing was a rare distributor that loved the beer, the brewers, and the events that promote it. Of course, Michael is telling his story on the show simply because profitability seems to pass the middle tier by as much as the supplier tier. And that is a story he's here to tell today. Before the late 90s, when you wanted to know what year Napoleon invaded Russia, you'd have to either A, pay attention in class, B, know somebody who knew, or C, look it up in an encyclopedia. Thankfully, my kids don't have to look in 30 volumes of Britannica to find answers anymore, and neither should you. When you're fermenting beer in a closed tank, you can either use the hydrometer that was invented in 1790, go check it up on Google, or AccuBrew. And AccuBrew is a real-time web-based measurement system that gives you access to your beer's fermentation metrics from literally anywhere in the world. It measures current gravity, temperature, and even clarity, and compares them to the standards you set for the recipe your team is brewing. If something's off, you'll get a notification immediately. Go to AccuBrew.io, enter Danbury at checkout for 10% off your sensor, follow them on socials at AccuBrew, or just call Parker at 727-685-9860. Your beer, your customers, and least of all, I will thank you. Well, Michael, I want to thank you for joining us today. Thanks for sharing all of your story. We've got a lot to talk about, but more than anything, I want to thank mm-hmm. you for being one of the few distributors I've talked to that actually has the balls to stand up and talk about your part of the industry. So thanks for being here today. Well, thank you for having me. I'm actually happy to do it. Yeah, well, and, and I think it's an important piece of the story. And I don't think, I mean, it, obviously, we have a lot of breweries that self-distribute. You have a lot of breweries that distribute. Um, and even more that are thinking about it, trying to figure out how to do it right. So I'm hoping that we can cover a little bit of that ground while also really kind of talking the story about, you know, what you went through and, and building it and what some of the struggles are on that side. I will say, as of industry, I don't think that most brewers have a lot of empathy for what the distributors go through. So hopefully we can change some of that. No, I've. I've picked that up, believe it or not. <laughs> yeah, you know, we try to keep it hot, subtle and hidden, but you know, it's not, it squeaks through. But before we get too far into it, tell me a little bit about like who you are and like what, like before you came to beer, like who were you? Like what are your hobbies? What do you love? That kind of thing. Who was I before beer? It's kind of, it's kind of hard to think about now. Yeah, to be honest, I feel like I was, you know, I started in beer when I was like 25. Yeah. So it was a little bit, uh, you know, back before then, I thought I was going to be a writer, frankly. Yeah, I, I, I got an English degree. At Ohio State, 
I, you know, I couldn't decide if I was going to do like sports writing or if I wanted to do like straight news or at the end, you know, I just was like anything that will pay me any money at all. That's really what I thought I'd be. And then people would always say, well, what if you wrote about beer? And I'm like, I don't know. But no, the, I, I, you know, played football, played video games, didn't really have a, a singular passion. And I think it was kind of interesting that I ended up in beer. Frankly, it felt like, you know, from the beginning of my career, and it, it's hard to think of. I don't know, it's an interesting path, I think, that, that, that took me here. But yeah, like I said, I was a failed novelist, failed journalist. That's how I ended up in beer. <laughs> well, I imagine there's some correlation there about the fact that when you're 19, if you tell someone you're going to own a brewery or a distributorship one day, like, since you can't drink, it's like it just, it almost isn't real. Like, well, <laughs> can't drink legally, I should clarify. I actually, that, that's funny. I mean, we were allowed to drink. At like family gatherings when we turned 18 because my grandpa, his parents had come from, uh, Germany and, uh, well, they were German. They came from Hungary. It's like, you know, as long as you're, you know, I wasn't able to like do beer bongs or anything like that, but having like a Sam Adams or a Farsteiner or something like that was kind of normal. They would have looked at me weird if I said I wanted to own a beer distributor at 19. I don't think anyone would have known what that was. Yeah. Right. So what was that transition like? Did you start at all on the production side or something like that? Or did you just sort of get into distribution straight away? No. Um, like I said, I graduated college uh, in the middle of a recession with an English degree. And I uh, just kind of took whatever job I could take doing uh, some freelance writing, doing a lot of substitute teaching, uh, worked at FedEx for a while. When I was 25, I was you know, about to go off of my parents' health insurance and I needed a real job. And a friend of mine uh, from high school had gotten a job right out of college as a beer merchandiser, which is basically um, like the low low man on the totem pole to distribute on the sales side. Like you basically fill in for routes, you fill in in resets. You know, you're basically doing work a grocery store chain to to fill their shelves. You have you know no real set schedule. It was kind of nice for a 25 year old guy to to work for a beer company. You get not not free beer, but you do get a lot of beer. You get you know get invited to the events, salespeople. Like you think it's cool. Like, oh, wow, I'm getting invited to an event. Like, well, yeah, you're just a body to make the, <laughs> to make the event look better. But hey, you know, free beer. So, yep, 25 started at a, a beer distributor. It was not like a Bud House or a Miller House, but also it wasn't a craft house. They kind of did a little bit of everything. Hmm. Imports, budget beer, a lot of FMBs, like flavored, like Smirnoff, that kind of thing, Sam Adams. They, but they had some craft beer that they had also picked up as well. So it was kind of like a mixed bag. But yeah, the craft beer was really what, what ended up appealing to me. As often as I could, I tried to get samples and go to the different craft beer events and stuff like that. This is around 2012, so this is when people actually did go to those events. <laughs> you could do a tap takeover and people would show up. Or yeah, pint and night. they actually took over all the tap. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so was was there, at this moment, you're in the industry, you're a you know mer- merchandiser, low man on totem pole. Was there a beer mm-hmm. you sort of fell in love with that you guys had? Was it something specific that's sort of um, changed it for you? I'd had, I mean, I'd had craft beer before. I remember Founders Breakfast, that was a big one for me that kind of changed the game. Working there, I remember I had three philosophers from Oma Gang, which was just absolutely insane. But even, st- I remember I had Gold Standard from Brooklyn, which was just a Zwickel beer. But it just blew my mind that a beer that looked like any beer you could get out of a can at a gas station could have that much flavor and could have, you know, that many layers and stuff like that. So, Definitely the whole spectrum. I drank anything that was out of the, the breaker pile, which was like the <laughs> scratch and dent. Anytime I saw something interesting in there, I'd make some excuse to get it. Anytime there were samples that weren't only for the salespeople, I would grab those too and, and just 
couldn't couldn't get enough of you know all the different brands that they had. I mean, we had Victory. We had it's just you know it's they they're old school now, but they were cutting edge back then. You know, with uh, we had Smutty Nose. Great Lakes was a big one for us. They also had a pretty decent amount of imports. So like Iyengar was a big one for me. Chimay, Duval, those were all that stuff was I couldn't get enough of it. Yeah, it's a good place to get started. So how did you make the transition from merchandiser to owner? Like what was what was the situation there? <laughs> There was, I mean, not as many steps as you, you, you'd like to think. I got a route about a year in and I was doing mostly budget stuff, uh, Colt 45, PBR, Heineken, a little bit of Sam Adam, a little bit of Great Lakes here in Nevada, but it was nice because you, 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 it was very simple, very simple, just straightforward business, but I couldn't help myself. I had to get, I tried to get the craft beer route. <laughs> so there was like, I had like three routes that were like craft beer folk. By the time I got one, I think they'd already eliminated one. So it was kind of like, this was 2014. I think they just kind of got rid of one. And then, unfortunately, I didn't last very long as the craft beer rep there. And I got fired because yeah. I didn't send enough Guinness. I didn't send enough Guinness to an account that like wasn't an Irish bar, didn't have any regular St. Patrick's Day. But for some reason, ownership went to that bar on St. Patrick's Day. There was a uh, pedal account, which means they ordered their own draft. They ordered their own draft off of a truck. And so I wasn't even in charge of sending them the Guinness, but it was my, I was associated with it. They, I got let go, but, um, I got hired by another distributor almost right away. And all the people who I had met on that route ended up being customers either, um, for that distributor or for Adina. It was like, I made a lot of good connections and, and really, it was a really fun time for the brief period of time, but I, I stayed at the other distributor, which was craft focused, was a much smaller distributor. It was statewide. But they had like Bell's founders, that kind of thing. That was about 2015 was when that all happened. And it was around that time that like I kind of thought like, well, I'll do this for a couple more years and then I'll find a real career. I, I something changed when I was around, you know, I think it was probably the end of 2016. I just started seeing all these other breweries popping up. I'm like, I could probably do that, right? <laughs> like, why not? You know, I've been doing this as a job for what felt like to me alone. And I figured I could, you know, get a little bit of money together. And we would do it right, and we'd, we'd start our own brewery. So I had this whole plan. We are going to start a production facility in southwest Ohio, and we are going to go to Columbus, Dayton, and Cincinnati, and we are going to start little tap rooms there, too. And that was, going to be, that was going to be our plan. It didn't take me very long to realize that that was not a viable business plan for somebody to, to just start a little – you'd have to raise a lot of money. Yeah, to just get that going. jump in. Well, we'll have a good weekend at a tasting room. We'll, we'll afford the next one. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I mean, basically, I think that it was, you know, it was an ambitious idea. And as I kind of, as the brewery got smaller and smaller in the business plan, you know, I really was doing a lot of research and I saw that there were a ton of new breweries that were going to be coming into Cincinnati, where I live, into Columbus and a few into, you know, into the area that I just did not think were any worse positioned than I would be whenever I started my brewery. And I just kept coming back to how much money it takes to start up a brewery and how many were coming online, how many were already out there. And I knew what the shelves looked like. I was selling to them every day. I knew what the bars looked like. And I was like, you know, I'm not saying there's not enough room for more breweries, but there's not enough room for me to feel confident. And besides, I don't know how to brew. I like to go home uh, at night. I don't like to work on weekends. You know, the only experience I have is in distribution and I don't know how long it would take for us to get to that point for to utilize that skill. And anyway, 
all these breweries are going to need some kind of distributor for all this. And so all these, and, and if all these breweries are opening up here, they're probably opening up elsewhere. And some of these are going to try to come to Ohio. And there's big, big names that hadn't come to Ohio yet that we thought we would have a good shot at. So I said, you know what? I think, I think it was me and uh, the guy who helped me get a job. We were going to start this brewery. And instead, I was like, we got to, we got to do a distributor. Totally different pivot. But my understanding is that distributorships also require a lot of capital up front, but they're hidden in a different way necessarily. So how did you circumvent that? I mean, obviously you had to get inventory, you had to get a warehouse, you had to get a truck. I, I had to get all that stuff. It's true. But it was a little bit more scalable. I mean, I don't think you could start when we started for, I'll just say $100,000 what we started for. I don't know many breweries that could start for $100,000 today. I know or some even of them <laughs> Yeah, but I think you're, and you're, what you're doing you is basically you're, yeah. you're bootstrapping. It's, it's a nano. And you're there seven days a week and you're not making a lot of money anyway. It used to be a lot easier to scale up uh, as a brewery. But yeah, for us, I mean, it wasn't like the, the kind of brewery I wanted to start was different than the kind of distributor I wanted to start. I figured I could I could build up and start small as a distributor and then work my way up. And as we got larger brands and got more customers and more reps and more trucks and stuff like that, we could scale a lot easier than with a brewery. You got to buy more fermenters. You have to buy a new building, oftentimes new buying a new brew house. Each of those have costs associated with them. Whereas really, all I did need to buy was a cooler and a van. Which uh, my partner, who kept his job, <laughs> was the one who uh, it was in his name. The we had to pay cash for the cooler. Uh, yeah, obviously, inventory was a cost that that we also had. But other than that, that wasn't a lot, and it was pretty easy, I think. For me to to kind of get into it, and it also the build out was. I mean, I didn't have to have a customer facing location. I didn't have to have a um, manufacturing you know side. I, there's so much less licensing we needed. So it wasn't as if it was simple. And there's a reason why most people don't do it. But it, it was just it was a lot less startup cost. I mean, I guess I'll just say it was a lot less of a gamble, to be frank. Interesting. So what was your competitive advantage? Like so you had other distributors in the market, a couple of them you'd worked at. What were you going to do differently? Well, I, I think that. The attitude I had at the time was that there were all these breweries that were coming on and craft beer was always changing. But, you know, we were going to help the breweries that were coming along. We were going to service them. And that would just the fact that we existed and that we didn't have a book full of 90 or 100 suppliers and that we weren't going to be tied up with larger suppliers like Miller or Bud or something like that. We would have the mind share for newer breweries. Also, if, you know, different kinds of breweries became more successful, we would be an attractive option because, again, we were new. We were, That was going to be just by our very existence was going to be our competitive advantage. The reality was the breweries were actually kind of interested in the fact there's a new distributor. But the customers are the ones who actually write your checks. And mm-hmm. I think that it ended up being that those are the people that we really should have been more focused on day one and, and, and bringing in the kind of brands that they were excited about. Because the kind of breweries that were excited about a new distributor were not always the kind of breweries that retailers were going to be excited about. Yeah, now we had that experience, and I tried to expand around the country. Is like you get told no by a lot of the houses, and so at some point you're like, this market makes sense, or it's on the way to the other market that I'm going to go to. You kind of take what you can get, and so unfortunately, some markets like, for example, in Indiana, we. We didn't sell well, but I wasn't able to get called back by any other distributor, so I went with the one that called me back. So, yeah, I I, I agree that just because the the brewery is looking for a new distributor doesn't mean they're a brewery that has sales and probably vice versa. It's it's the other way around. Yep. I mean, that that is what we found out. The way we started was I said that people were interested, but a lot of the Ohio breweries were not because you can self-distribute here. 
they would say like, hey, you know, like, that's cool. Come back when you have five trucks. You know, you're a guy with, with a van and a cooler. I have a cooler. I have a van. I have a guy. You know, like it wasn't something that we could really add value to those guys. And like I said, even even the people out of town were not. We're still kind of like skeptical about a, a new distributor, like brand new. Like somebody had to be first. And we actually, our first five breweries came from Kentucky, which is a bordering state. Ohio is able to self-distro. Kentucky, you can't self-distro. And you can't self-distro into Ohio from Kentucky. So a lot of the breweries there kind of figured they'd get picked up by some Ohio distributor. And most of them hadn't gotten picked up. So we ended up picking up uh, three of the northern Kentucky breweries and then two more um, that were in Kentucky that went across the river. And that's how we started out. Well, so I imagine this would change. I'd be interested to see from the beginning to the end how the evolution of what the onboarding process looked like. But at that point, I assume it was kind of take what comes your way. But how did you decide on bringing on a new brewery? Like, what was the idea? They had to have certain products that you were looking for, holes in the market you were trying to fill, label art that you couldn't say no to, a hot chick who was a sales rep. But what was it for you, dude? What we used to look for was, I used to say, good people, good beer, and a good business, which included like good marketing and, and seemed stable. That just was not enough. And we basically started pretty quickly looking for brands that people would be immediately able to recognize. Um, and usually that did not mean a large brewer. It meant a, a, a brewery that was kind of niche and kind of, for lack of a better word, like a hype beer. And to the best we could, that's what ended up becoming our bread and butter. And what we kind of became known for was bringing in high end product from out of state. That was what we started looking for. When it came to looking for suppliers, it was places that when we talked to our customers, they would get excited when they heard the name, or at least when they looked it up and they saw what the beer was and that kind of thing. So that very quickly, we realized you couldn't just pick any, even, even if the beer was good, even if it seemed like they had good marketing behind them, even if it seemed like they were great people. And we're going to support the brand. At the end of the day, if I go in the next week and all the beer is still on the shelf, there's nothing I can do. So did you say no a lot during the, your yeah, career? Early on, no. But pretty soon, it was basically any time somebody reached out to me, we would really be skeptical. Yeah, <laughs> Just really. If we hadn't heard of them. I mean, I don't even know if they get an email back, to be honest. Not to be rude, but it was essentially, that was something I was told very early on, was it's so important who you say no to. Because I, mean, that's, I was talking to all the other small distributors I could because I, I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. As for, all I knew how to do was go to a customer and sell the beer. Everything else I had to learn on the fly. So I was talking to a lot of, of those other distributors and a guy from Tennessee that was what he told me. Like, you need to say no more than you say yes. And I didn't understand at first. I'm just trying to fill a van full of beer. And then pretty soon, nothing's more expensive than beer that you buy that you don't sell. That I mean, it's just not, it's not even close. I mean, when you look at what we spend money on, I mean, it's like 70% beer. <laughs> you know, it's, it's huge. And if it's more than 70%, then you're really in trouble. So that's where if it doesn't sell, it really, it really can eat away at your bottom line. That's something that I, not that I didn't know that, but basically like, oh, at least we have it. We'll eventually sell it. It just, at the end of the day, I ran out of, I don't even say ran out of money space, but basically inventory took up space in my bank account before it took up space in the warehouse is basically what I'll say. Yeah. You can definitely get in trouble quickly with that. The whole point is obviously that we're doing the podcast to kind of let brewery owners know what's out there, what they need to know. What is that statement? What is the lesson that 
you want people to hear. Um, if you're a brewery considering expansion, I won't even take your email if you haven't heard of you. What, what, you, what is the message that you're trying to tell people there? Well, I, I think that you need to work on your brand. I mean, you need to work and, and quality is a huge part of that. Style choice, frankly, is a huge part of it as well. And you want basically what I'm describing sounds very difficult, but it's very difficult to sell beer that people haven't heard of. It's, and it, it's very difficult to translate what makes your tap room successful to a city that is, is more than an easy drive away. It's very challenging, right? So if you want to expand, I mean, you have to start work on your brand. And again, it's, it's tough. I don't envy anyone trying to do this, but if the beer is not there and the brand is not there and I, and you can, I mean, you might, I think the reason why people would rather just send emails out than to do this is because it's hard to guarantee that you're going to get any return. And a lot of times people don't, but I think that building the brand and, and making sure that the quality is absolutely top notch, that's, that's the only way that people are going to respond to your brand beer and it, it's not an easy path especially today that's the only way the only way to do distribution is to have to have beer that people want i've always said it's kind of that like weird conundrum that you can't really go into a market that you don't have some sort of brand cachet and some hype in but you can't really get hype if you don't in the market so how the fuck do you create that out of nowhere no unfortunately it's so it's social media you know it's word of mouth it, it just takes time and that's something that a lot of breweries do not have yeah, time and money, or we definitely don't have enough of. All right. Well, I should have mentioned that as I was uh, do it, going back through my notes for this one, that I decided to pull my notes that I used for the very first season, which is really kind of fun and entertaining for me. So that was my focus on quality over branding section of my book. Mm -hmm. We're going to take a quick break, and I want to talk about starting okay. small and build, which is the second mistake that I made when I opened my brewery. And you started small, so I'm curious to see how that worked for yeah. you. So let's take a break. We'll be right back. Fantastic. If you were interested in anything his old dad was interested in, my son would say it's something like, y'all need to be fucking with PR. Your booze business is more than just an online profile. Fine, keep doing your limited can release and your meet the beer tender posts, but it's time to think bigger than just cheesy marketing. Better, more professional. Brittany Hanning has years of experience turning big ideas into targeted communication in the beverage alcohol business, and her PR firm, Made to Measure Communications, can tighten your image with expert services ranging from AI generation all the way to media relations. See, people in this industry love to talk about the importance of branding and media outreach, but don't kid yourself for a second. You need an expert to navigate that stuff. So go to the website at M2MCOMMS, M2MCOMS, look them up in San Francisco, or just ask me for Brittany's number. But seriously, stop screwing around and get your image right today. All right, welcome back. So we got one big lesson out of the way. Spend a bunch of money getting attention before you ask somebody to sell your beer. Hmm, that sounds pretty logical. So like I said, one of the other mistakes that I made was to start small and build. And this is definitely something a lot of people do. You, you mentioned nano in the first section. I think that's one of the stupidest things anybody can do, but that's a different argument for a different day. <laughs> but even with the distribution piece, obviously starting small comes with some inherent problems. And, and I say that as a guy who's worked with small distributors, like Texas Barrel House in Austin. It was Wandering Boots is an early one that I interviewed for this podcast. Neither of them had cold storage. Barrel House put it in later, but when they first started, it was all, it was air, well, Boots wasn't even air conditioned. It was ambient temperature in Texas, like 110 at some point. Barrel House did have air conditioning, but it was, you know, 
just barely above that kind of wine storage temperature that it should have been. I would have to assume that no matter how big you built your cold storage that you outgrew that fairly quickly. No, maybe this was, I guess I'll say this, maybe we should have started without <laughs> cooler, but I I didn't want to seem like I was completely an absolute bare bones startup. One thing we invested in was cold storage. I just looked at the price tag. We spent like $20,000, which is, you know, a fifth of our startup money <laughs> on a refrigerator. And then we had to spend more money to get it set up. So we would have cold storage. And we, that cooler was 60 by 20 feet. And it kept pretty much, besides one time, we were pretty much able to put almost everything that should, we were able to put everything that should be in there in there. So we sometimes had, there was sours and seltzers and stuff like that. We would keep ambient. And I did get an air conditioned room to start putting bulk pallets and to start putting like stuff like, I didn't want to keep it in the, in the hot summer. We just outgrew it with where we are now. I'm now, we now finally are having issues with cold storage. Well, but again, well, this is, I think to answer your question though, a lot of times I did run into trouble, not wanting to seem too small when I just was. And I think that was probably the mistake. I always said I should have started with three times the startup capital. So I could have done everything that I wanted to do and still have money left over. Or I should have started with a third of that money and just bootstrapped everything. So I wouldn't maybe spend, I mean, again, I, I'm proud that we were able to keep everything cold that we needed to. I mean, it looked kind of funny when we first started out because we were using a tiny little corner of it. But no, I didn't want to start out too small because you would see the look on people's faces when you would would tell them, oh, yeah, we just started. You know, I got one driver and there's me and then there's a salesman. And don't worry, we're I'm sure with your brand, we'll be able to, you know, hire another rep and, you know, to not have that cold storage because the warehouse we had was not air conditioned. So if I would be at the mercy and Cincinnati is not Texas, but it's, you know, also not the Arctic. So it gets very hot in the summer. I was just in the warehouse earlier today, and it's it's still very hot. Getting that cooler set up was, and I remember pulling those panels off the truck. That was when I realized I was in over my head, was when I had the day planned out to set up the cooler. And it took us all day, five people all day, just pulling the panels off of the truck because our dock, it faced uh, a hill. And you couldn't pull a 53-foot truck mm. straight on. So we had to pull it at an angle and basically had like boards so people could pull the the panels off which is fine for like the the wall panels but the ceiling panels were like 300 pounds we had to get a dolly from the u-haul store it took us a whole day and i knew then it just i just remember that feeling that i was going to have to spend money to have somebody build the box for us and then that meant i wasn't going to have enough money to buy all the beer i wanted to buy so then I could then we could make enough money to hire a rep. And I just remember it kind of like that's when the everything started to kind of like tighten. You know, you're just like, oh, it just was that feeling never really left until I signed the purchase agreement to, uh, <laughs> to give up to give up the company. That was a tough day, but I was very proud that we had the cooler. People tried to tell me that it was, you know, we paid too much for it. And then they tried to sell me a new cooler, but it kept beer cold pretty much all the time. We had very little maintenance on it. And that was something I was proud of. That we were able to do that. Same deal with the van. Van was a refrigerated van. It was used, but it was basically, it was like a year old or something like that. I mean, we put 180,000 miles on it. We spent a lot of money on that. It was 864 bucks every month. Hmm. <laughs> and we had 8,200 square feet of warehouse space, which was too much, but I think we got a pretty good deal on it. We had, we actually had a nice landlord, which is kind of crazy. Yeah. The of the day we had probably maybe 
either too much or too little money starting out. And I think that that was we were kind of an awkward, I, I guess it was because of how I did things. I never wanted to seem like we were too small to do anything, even sometimes when we were. Well, you need to get the confidence of a supplier. Otherwise, you're going to have some that won't sign with you. And that's definitely for sure. And, and, and vice versa. I mean, there's definitely mm-hmm. breweries are going to do the same shit. And they're going to tell you, like, you know, we can produce X capacity knowing full well that they don't really have the logistics in place with the supply chain to be able to do that. They could on paper. The tanks are big enough. Stuff like that, too. So, I mean, obviously, everyone kind of puts their best foot forward in this industry, which is part of why this podcast exists, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. So, what about forklift? Did you have, like, forklift? Did not did have not? a forklift because I thought it was too expensive and I wasn't sure if I could drive it. I didn't want to get people certified and I was kind of worried about safety. So, I instead bought something that was way more dangerous and uh it's basically like a walk behind <laughs> oh yeah it was this giant like it looked like fred flintstone used it i mean it was just it looked like a giant triceratops the battery was always like just leaking it did run fairly reliably but pretty much all we could use it for was we'd wrap pallets and then we would put it on the van which was inside the warehouse and then we'd drive the van out of the warehouse and sometimes we'd use it to take the downstack pallets of kegs and sometimes we use it to stack empty pallets of kegs that was pretty much all we used it for like it was too unreliable to take anywhere near the cooler. I could just see those forks going through the wall of the cooler. And then my prized refrigeration was, you know, we'd have to spend more money trying to get that fixed. No, I should have gotten a forklift is what is basically a short answer. And that's a great example of we kind of split the baby on that, where it kind of fit the bill of what we needed, but a forklift would have done the same, wouldn't have been that much more expensive, frankly. We also could have taken it down our ramp and into the parking lot, which we could not do with this thing. It got stuck outside twice. First time, shame on me, I guess. Shame on it. Second time, we had a delivery driver for a third-party freight company. And he, for some reason, took it upon himself to take this thing outside. And both times, it just would run out of batteries in the parking lot. And somebody would have to take a pickup truck through our garage. If you've seen our garage, it's basically the width of a Ford Transit van. (laughs) <laughs> which is what we had. And so you, everybody hit the door, everybody scraped the mirrors on the way out. And then so basically taking somebody's personal vehicle to drag this horrible dinosaur, it's like 4,000 pounds. It was an absolute nightmare. Still getting used today. But we have, I mean, I'm never, I'm never going to buy something like that again. I mean, if someone <laughs> wants to buy it, it's great. But that was a huge mistake. I don't want to say a huge mistake, but it was like one of those mistakes that uh, you could see how a first-time business owner could make and that I would not have made if I had more experience. Well, that's the whole point we learned, right? So the fourth mistake I put in my book is one of the things I'm the most happy mm-hmm. to bitch about. And uh, I have a feeling you're going to have a slightly different opinion, which is what makes these conversations fascinating. But it was... Uh, mm-hmm. Just brew whatever's popular instead of profitable. And then at the time, when I wrote this, it was like 2019, it was right at the beginning of just like the, what I consider to be the worst case scenario in beer, the lactose being put in every goddamn thing and the, you know, pastry mm-hmm. stouts, pastry sours, I don't even think were a thing then. Like, I'm pretty sure 2019, you're oh, like, we, we, we had a, we, yeah, there's a few pastries. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so anyways, the point being, from your perspective, I mean, in a way, your job is to sell what's popular, not necessarily mm-hmm. profitable, but because you're 30 points for the most part, across the board, based on what you negotiate with. But what were your best-selling brands? You said you were kind of known for hype beers. I assume you were known for these. Yes. So that that is part of what we, we did sell. And because it, you're right, I mean, we did just make a negotiated margin on it. So 
the higher the dollar amount of the case was, the more dollars we got per case. Uh, and that was very helpful when you're trying to fill a Ford Transit van. That kind of came to me by accident. I think the first, they reached out to me on the summer, this brewery out of New England, and they had, you know, they made New England IPAs. And I remember seeing the FOB, and it was, which is like the price of the beer that we pay. And it was higher than the price that we would ask retailers for any of our beers. Mm-hmm. And I, I just like, is, are you serious? Like, what's going to happen here? And they're like, trust me, people are going to buy it. And this wasn't this wasn't even that big a name of uh, nobody had heard of this brewery before. But the beer was hazy. It came from New England. They had decent untap ratings, and it just kind of took off. And that was when I realized that I was making the most money on this product. It took up the least amount of space in my cooler because it was in and out. And I did have to pick it up. I, I couldn't pick it up myself. I was had to get third party freight, which was a pain in the butt. But at the end of the day, I was making more money on this than all of our other breweries combined. And so that was kind of when I. That was, and I don't think I had this perfect, but that was when I started to realize that if we were going to succeed, it was not going to be selling 9.99 six-pack bottles, and we'd have to figure out something different. So that was basically popular and profitable for us was mostly the same. Now that said, we did have a big chain play where a brewery that we represented or we're even we're going to represent, they negotiated because they were going into all these Kroger's, uh, all these stores, that they were going to get a tighter margin and it was already a lower priced item. And now it was a popular brand. If you look at the numbers, we sold probably we sold a lot of cases. It made us a lot of money on the revenue side. But then if you look at even just gross profit, say nothing of how much it costs to deliver it, it was horrible. And our percentages on that were not great. Because of and the lower then, margin that you had negotiated or whatever? Or they had yeah, because it, it was a lower margin. And that doesn't, didn't even even how much work it took to deliver all that stuff and to keep that going. So if I just looking at gross profit, not even, not even net profit, just gross profit, you would see brands that we would sell far fewer cases that were making us a much better percentage. In total, those brands were, those were the ones that were the most helpful to us. Well, one question. So I, I was the brewery that was one of the most annoying for the distribution side of the industry. And, and I'm not you know unique in that way, but I, we were definitely not very flagship oriented. So I, I had mm-hmm. three beers that I kind of made year round. Uh, one sold really well, but we did a lot of mixed culture farmhouse stuff that was annual based on the release of the fruit or batch 12 of different hop that was dry hopped into the barrel aged sour. How did you deal with that? Did you have a lot of one-offs and just like singular, you can get eight cases of this from different suppliers around the country and, and how do you handle that from multiple suppliers or how did you handle it? I mean, we liked that. We were actually, people would annoy us by trying to us. Like, hey, you know, this is our flagship uh, IPA. Like, well, we didn't tell people that, so don't send it again. You know, <laughs> like we, you know, like it's like it's a it's a rotator for us. The people who had been doing it for a while kind of understood that. They're like, this is a flagship in our local market. It's a flagship in Topeka, Kansas. It doesn't have to be a flagship in Cincinnati, Ohio, because we would just go into these places and it's just what's new, what's new, what's new, what's new. And you could see, I mean, the sales numbers, man. You would see. If I got 40 cases of something and I sold 20 of them, I was fucked. In the first week, I was fucked because it would take forever to sell those last 20 because it wasn't new. And the people who paid attention to what was new knew even if we hadn't told them it came in that last week. They saw it on Instagram and I only want what's new, you know, and we would get a few in and it would trickle. Some accounts would rebuy and stuff like that. And we'd find a way to get rid of those other 20 cases. But I wanted us, if we paid, like, let's just say we paid like $3,000 for a certain item. I would want us to make that 
back that week because otherwise we might not make it back at all. Yeah, it's totally different than other distributors. And that, that was part of our competitive advantage. We had new stuff for those customers every single week. If we didn't have anything new for them, that was a terrible sales week. You could just see, you can look at, you know, week to week, it was feast or famine. Like, oh, this is the week we got some good drops. Here's a week where I said, let's just try and sell through what we got last week. Here's a week where we got some more good drops and, you know, just up and down. Well, that's a logistical nightmare to try to even just plan to have something shipped every single week or enough things shipped. So in my opinion... It was hard to plan. Go ahead. Yeah, because well, there was me. There was, I, had a, I had a guy who we ended up turning into like a brand manager to do just that. I mean, he was our best sales rep, but he wanted to do everything. He was, he was a very talented guy. We still work together. What we would do is basically, you know, when I was doing it, it what really was up and down because I would have time to plan it out and then I would get busy doing other things and then it would taper off and then I would order more and then you could see where I'd over-ordered, you can see where I under-ordered and it was a huge pain in the butt. I mean, and I think if I would have spent more time on a cycle, I think it could have been a lot more beneficial to us. Obviously, trying to find flagships, trying to find products that would resell. We had a few of those. Local beers usually would sell a little bit better, even if it wasn't new. We had a couple of uh, Seltzer brand from Untitled Art, which always sold very well, especially in the summer, though. Pipeworks Ninja versus Unicorn was our number one selling product, period. And we had a local brand that when they were in the chains, obviously, that did that did very well. Maybe we can talk about that later. But I mean, we had a handful of local brands that had semi-regular flagships or even in some cases, true flagships that had some chain presence and, and had some regular customers buying them. So I watched a lot of breweries like really experiment with this, and especially when it got bad in Texas. There were enough breweries making these kinds of beers, one-offs and special editions. And, and I always said with mine, like, you know, in hindsight, I would recommend you wait until the sixth batch. And that's where it always hit my stride. After the sixth time I made something, I had dialed it into the point that I was truly proud of it. And I'd continue to improve it and evolve it. But at the end of the day, it was usually around number six. Anyways, point being, a lot of these guys would do this and run out and just throw tons of one-offs from, you know, crazy shit with fruit in it down to just a simple, badly made Czechoslovakian Pilsner. But when you miss, how did that fuck you up as a distributor? I have seen breweries miss, stays on the shelf. They come back in next week and the retailer's like, I'm not going to buy the new one until you sell this one. And I've seen them have a buyback schedule where they're mm-hmm. buying the last, you know, 10 or 20% of that batch, which, as you know, is your profit, you know, for the most part. So mm-hmm. I guess the short answer, did you have any big misses and run to those? And then how did you overcome it if you did? Yeah, yeah, we had a bunch. It happened all the time. I mean, I would say before 2020, I never closed anything out because I was worried. I would just eat it. I would just let it sit in the warehouse forever. And then just throw it away. I never wanted to see our brands on the closeout shelf. And then around March 2020, <laughs> I had a much different attitude towards inventory. Then also I realized it made made a ton more sense. Once I did it, like once I ripped the band-aid off, we did it all the time. So yeah. what would usually happen is we would I mean, there's never like there wasn't a ton of major clunkers. It was usually, there wasn't anything, we never really just bought that much of anything. So it would never, typically, there were two exceptions. Typically, it would just be like, it would never be more than 50 cases. And if it was, it wasn't that expensive. So usually we could just, we had a couple accounts that would buy stuff at a discount and we just send it there. And that was where that stuff went. And I never sent it to our best best accounts. I just sent it to the places where I knew they knew how to sell it. And also I knew that they weren't pulling through so much product that if that brand died in there because of all that product that, that it had, you know, quote unquote gone bad was in there, then it was it wasn't the end of the world. We did have every once in a while we I mean exploding cans, we had that. But the brewery would pay for it. So we would we would pick them up instantly, fast as possible. We you know, if we caught it before we 
had paid for the product, usually like, all right, this is coming off. They're not in any position to I mean, they, they understand. And then a lot, I mean, a lot of these places, even if we had already paid for it, we were doing enough business with them that they would usually let us get a credit. And if they didn't, it was the last time we ever picked up. That did not typically happen. Now, usually people were pretty cool about that. And I will say, though, if we had to pick up exploding cans too much, we just didn't bother with it. <laughs> it just, I mean, too much, any amount is, is frankly too much. It's, it's, uh, I get, it's just not, it's just not fun. There were recalls and stuff like that. And it's usually very small scale. And I said there were two exceptions. The first exception was actually one of our launch brands. And I will name names here because yes. it's all very well documented. If you go find. So this is St. Arnold. You need to look this up. Everyone needs to look this up. St. Arnold, which no longer exists, was a brewery that was started by what would turn out to be a scam artist. He was basically the podcast Dr. Death had come out around this time, but he basically was a Dr. Death of breweries. He did not, he somehow had like, not only was he bad at brewing, like he seemed to be like toxically bad, like somehow would just like <laughs> was cursed. And I guess he went from brewery to brewery and like got head brewing job and just had this, it was a disaster. We didn't know any of this stuff at the time. This was recommended to me by another distributor, one of the small distributors, new distributors that I've been talking to. He had gotten it. It was from Kentucky, but it was actually closer to Missouri than Ohio. He was selling it in Missouri, so I was going to sell it in Ohio. The Kentucky distributor that represented him had all the cool brands. They were had all the brands that, that we, we, they were who we wanted to be like. So we were like, all right, cool, let's give this a shot. But then around the time, it was all weird. So so first of all, he didn't have what I ordered. He had beer that I specifically said I didn't want. This is the last day this would have worked on me, but he said, can you just buy it anyway? And I said, yes. Um, last time I did that, it was a Imperial Milkshake IPA. And when, you, when I tell you the kind of brewery he was, which was basically like it was kind of a farmhouse, kind of a farmhouse kind of thing. Oh, mix. He said it was medieval inspired. You used like open tank fermentation. It was none of it was climate controlled. And he made an Imperial Milkshake IPA. With and he put it in a sugar. bottle. Yeah, that sounds smart. Well, here, I mean, he was notorious for exploding bottles. I will say this. None of our bottles ever exploded. Those things sat in our warehouse for years. And we never had a single one explode. So we just didn't know where to throw them all away. So he was a launch brand, though. So, like, you see, like, all of our, like, hey, Adina's just starting. That product is in all the pictures. Because he, like, had already had, like, this terrible reputation. And we didn't know it. He uh, he didn't want to be in any pictures. He was this total weirdo. Uh, I wish you could remember his name. You can find the story if you look up St. Arnold. But basically, what happened was that, like, this all came out about five or six months after we had opened up. It was January. So we opened up September 1st, 2018. This is January 2019. This story comes out. There's this guy, this weirdo. And he had already stopped returning my calls. Kind of already burned enough. Like He just already seemed weird. But we were kind of like saying, hey, you got any more beer? You know, whatever. I hadn't heard from him at all. So I kind of knew something was up. And they, they kind of like quietly closed. Nobody really ever heard why. And I wasn't that worried. The beer wasn't selling. Frankly, I'd heard enough bad stuff about him by then that I just I hadn't heard any of this this huge story of his scam days he just said like a combine had destroyed the order of beer that I had placed it was like some obvious lie so just I remember thinking like well this guy's obviously like I don't why is he making up a story like this he had offered net terms and then he had asked for an advance on the order and I was like fuck no what the (laughs) you know so I was like basically already done with him by the time we got our first delivery unfortunately people kind of associated us with this brand and it wasn't really selling and then all of a sudden this story comes out we're five months in I'm freaking out because I'm like, we're just going to be known. This is how we're going to be known. This is we're going to be known as the distributor that brought this weird scam artist <laughs> to Ohio. And so we, I picked up every single bottle. I told me, I think I had 
I don't know if we had one or two reps at this time, but I know we said we're picking everything up. Don't let anyone keep anything. Not that anyone was fighting us on that, but don't let anyone keep anything. Get it all off the shelf. We spent like 2000 bucks buying back, which was a lot back then. It was like close, close to our rent. I remember looking at the rent check and looking at how much beer we had picked up and it was about the same, but we just had to do it because we did not want our reputation associated with that brand. I wanted to throw it down the memory hole as fast as possible. You know, maybe that was one of those mistakes where I was trying to be a little too big. But at the end of the day, I mean, our reputation was still being made at that time. Your reputation is always on the line. But so we picked it all up. And actually, how we got our, uh, you know, one of the best employees we had uh, was the guy who was kind of like who had brought the story to the Cincinnati beer scene. He was like, didn't it, didn't Adina pick this up? <laughs> and I was like. And I was pissed because he owned a, he owned a, a, a great craft beer bar. He hadn't brought any of our beer in. And he's like shitting on our beer. And I was like, what the fuck is this asshole? So instead of being a jerk, though, I just said, hey, God, look, I'm going to get this taken care of. Can you just like not talk shit about us? Because he's like, oh, I didn't mean to talk shit. You know, like that's how we ended up having a friendly relationship. And he ended up buying a lot of our beer. And then when unfortunately he had to close the bar, he ended up coming working for us. And it ended up being, you know, we ended up making a lot more than $2,000 with his impact. So it ended up being having a little bit. And I think I think people did appreciate that we stood by our reputation. And we picked all that stuff up. I used to see it on the, I don't know if it's still on the shelf at Kentucky. <laughs> that distributor's gone too now. Is that Dauntless? Yeah, I mean, that Dauntless, yeah. Michael Mitten and those guys. I never actually met mm-hmm. him, hooked yeah. up with them, but I did meet them. So. Talking about recall. The only other time we had like a major problem was, I really just got to get into the story. I don't know how you want to frame it, but... um. <laughs> We uh, so basically the other time we had to do a big pickup, they had to get rid of a lot of beer. It was periodically with a brand that we had taken a lot of chains and that had done a lot of contract brewing. And there was a lot of hopes into how that would go. And there was a lot of because they were contract brewing, they had to have a certain amount brewed. And because they were not capable of storing all that stuff, we ended up taking it all, means we ended up buying it all, hmm. means we ended up responsible for it, which means we had to close a lot of product. Out. Just because it went bad or it wasn't good to begin with? Well, both. Usually it was because it would go out of code. Or oftentimes it'd be, they would brew their seasonals, like they would just not have their shit together and they would get their seasonals super late. Mm. So then we would have our order of seasonals would come in. The Oktoberfest comes in September. We, you know, Christmas beer comes in December. You know, we would have a bunch of stuff left over. I feel like I closed out almost every single seasonal because it would come late. It wouldn't sell through enough. Or they would sell through the first batch and then there'd be some excitement and they'd say, oh, you got, now you got to take another batch and we'd have that second batch was it. So it was, it was it just the gross profit we were making on those items. Those were pretty slim. That was a lot of the stuff we ended up so that was that was the stuff we were actually feeling the hurt on when we had to close that stuff out. But a lot of times it was just code dates or seasonality. Every once in a while you would have because it was contract brewed and the brewery didn't want to pay the brewer to be there and the brewer thought he was above contract brewing anyway, so he didn't want to be down there. So like they would just brew something, they brew a hazy and see right through it. They every once in a while you'd you'd have something that was kind of off spec. Nothing was too bad. That we we never had anything that was like we got like eight pallets of something in and it was all bad and we had to figure out something to do with it. Nothing like that ever. It was usually like a pallet or a pallet and a half. And just just because it was out of code or, or because nobody wanted a Christmas beer in March. Well, I want to ask you one last question about this part of the business, but I'm going to take a quick mm-hmm. break first. So I'm going to let you think about it because I want a good answer. Okay. Did you ever get pitched a beer from a supplier that the labeling, the beer itself, the recipe, all of it? was just so fucking stupid that you said no to it. And don't answer me now. I'll come back and I hear you. Okay. 
So do you ride motorcycles? Because if you do, you want the sickest gear on the planet. And SimpsonMotorcycleHelmets.com is the site for you. Break free from the pack with your kick-ass style and design that is as subtle as a sucker punch. When you're out on the open road, don't let anyone confuse you with your grandpa. Project an attitude that's all your own. With their signature style and performance, Simpson sets the standard of looking cool while providing superior comfort and protection. Authenticity counts, and there are many helmet brands out there, but there is only one Simpson. You ride a killer bike, don't you? Why settle for a boring helmet? Pick your poison at SimpsonMotorcycleHelmets.com. Badass riders don't settle for anything less. See for yourself on Instagram at Simpson underscore motorcycle underscore helmets. Thanks for riding with us. We'll see you out there. I remember like, you can't tell anyone about it. And I was like, I remember looking at my partner and be like, it's just a seltzer, right? <laughs> That's what they're talking about. And it was. And I was just like, that was it. Like, we have an idea. We're a brewery. And we're going to make Picture this. a seltzer. <laughs> yeah, it was just like, this was 2018. So it wasn't like every single brewery had already pulled that string. But yeah. it, again, it was just blatantly obvious. I mean, people, breweries come up with dumb ideas all the time. I don't know. I feel like we had, I really did think about this. I, I don't think there was anything that was, somebody once pitched me and recently pitched me the idea of, said he knew not to market it this way, but the idea it was a session pastry stout <laughs> was basically the way it was built. And I kind of just gently had to tell him like that people who like pastry stouts don't care about calories. I, I think it was it was not necessary, but I think he was he was running it by me. Like it wasn't as if you know people have in brainstorming they have goofy ideas. And actually, I'll tell you this: the highest gross profit item that we had, like as far as a like, number of dollars versus how much we spent on it and versus how much we sold it for, the item called Twelve Milkshake Stouts of Christmas. It was a Different holiday months. variety pack yeah. with twelve different pastry stouts that were actually like five to eight percent, and we did not sell them any time else they didn't have very much success outside of that but actually i hope we get it this i mean it, it's it's great for the holiday it's great for people like the novelty of it and then it just wears off completely and like the actual product is not particularly popular anytime outside of the holiday like if you, if you had like an individual like they have like a uh, like a toffee cookie one that does not sell outside of it because it's like it's they're all low abv i did mixed relative. four packs and that was a humongous pain in the ass just logistically for that brewery to be able to pull that off is that's a lot like that's not a small undertaking to be able to have 12 different fucking recipe even though it's an infusion that's still a lot i think it's because we sold that product and we didn't really sell very much of the rest of their portfolio. I think that we weren't the only distributor who who did that. I think there were distributors who only picked up that product because it does itself, but then nothing else. People who they want the high ABV. That's it's a goofy thing, but that's what they want. But yeah, I think that's probably the dumbest thing. Like you said, like the dumbest thing that we said. I mean, it's not something we said no to. If we said yes, and it, and it worked. I, I think that generally, I like when breweries ask. Okay. Uh, so the general message I'm sell. hearing is that you don't say no. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, we, I mean, if it's, we say no, it's not going to sell. But I mean, I, I'm trying to think of like, I mean, yeah, I really typically people will have like, we had a 90 cereal themed slushy sour. You know, we don't sell a lot of it. And that's the thing is we don't, sell, like, a lot of the stuff is like we sell like 10 cases. It's not like a mainstay, but people do like it. And the people who do like it will pay uh, a good amount for it. And for them, it, it, it knocks their socks off. But, you know, I mean, we're talking about 10, 25 cases tops. 
in a statewide release. Usually, yeah, I mean, usually if people would want it, I mean, who am I to, to deny it? I'm trying. I'm trying to think if there was something that, on principle, I was like, no, we're not going to do that. I, I think that the breweries have maybe just a tad bit more restraint than they get credit for, but I don't know. I can't. Th- I can't think of anything off the top of my head. Well, so let's pivot to uh, can specifically. So in the book, mm-hmm. I made a long argument about why mobile canning for breweries is stupid. Again, that was 2019. I think that the last four years have just borne that out to be more and more true. But I think at the same time, less and less people have listened to what I had to say about it. And the pandemic helped because obviously people got some cash. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people invested in their own canning lines, which does make a big difference. Mm-hmm. But one of the questions I want to ask you from your perspective is you were there kind of during the death of the bottle. Like, how did mm-hmm. that work for you? Were you just anti-bottles, just limit bottles? Like, how did? what was your prospect on that? I think that a lot of times my own opinions, and maybe this was something I learned early on, was that sometimes you have to shove your own opinions on something down a little bit. I don't really care bottles versus cans, me personally. I got a Great Lakes Variety Pack bottles. That's the only, only way... It comes, the one I like, the classic one. I get bottles of Chimay and St. Bernardus and any kind of Belgian quad is going to come in a bottle. Rot House only comes in a bottle. It's one of my favorite beers. I like bottles. They're fine. But the customer doesn't. There, I think there's value to cans. And I think that people just have decided that cans are where they're at. For me, as someone who's buying the product, not packaging it, cans basically are the only thing. I think if I was going to look at my warehouse right now, I don't think we have any product in bottles that I'm trying to think we have anything in bottles. Right? There's stuff that I did not sell to the purchasing company, uh, and a lot of that was bottles. We closed out some bottles, but I don't know if we have any bottles right now. Our first brewery was a bottle only brewery, wooden cask. They were the only packaged brewery I had besides those fuckers from uh, St. Arnold. (laughs) They were in bottles too. But yeah, basically they switched to cans around 2020 and they were doing their barrel-aged stuff in bottles for a while and then they moved everything to cans, I think basically because they couldn't find parts for the bottle line. To one extent, they they were tired of fixing it. We signed with a brewery that had two core items in bottles. I asked them to switch to cans and I remember actually the conversation I had with them they had a canning line too. I remember saying, like, all right, you know, is it, how much more is it going to be if you guys switch, to, you start putting this in cans? They're like, actually, we'll save a little bit of money for <laughs> whatever reason. And then I was like, okay, let's just switch now. And like, well, we want to wait, make sure we run through our stock of bottle labels. I said, well, how many batches do you need to do in cans to pay for just dumping those bottle labels? Like, how much money? Or do you have to have bottle labels? I was like, one batch of cans paid for all the bottle labels. <laughs> so like. It would have cost them more money to lay, use the labels than not. So, yeah. again, they were not using mobile canning. I, I know people have done it. We had a local brewery around 2020 just give up on distribution because they had new owners. They looked at the numbers on mobile canning and were like, this sucks, and just stopped completely. Just like gave up completely on distribution. I know there is one place locally that had been doing mobile canning for a long time, but they did a ton of volume. I think they must have had a good deal. I'm not sure how they made that work. They were one of the biggest customers, I guess, of that place. But yeah, I mean, as far as mobile canning goes, it doesn't sound great for most breweries. And it doesn't sound like there's a whole lot of options if you don't want to, if you don't have money for a canning line. Uh, that said, it does seem like the customer's mind is made up and it's very hard to sell bottles. I think Flying Dog, shoot, they don't have a brewery anymore. Yeah, there's like Ellicottville, I know is in our market that has bottles. You know, I mean, places like Great Lakes and Two Hearted and, or sorry, Bell's, Oberon, they still have 12-pack bottles. You know, I've definitely seen where people 10 years ago were like, oh, let's try cans out. And now it's everything. I don't, I hate 
cans over bottles for the most part. But at the end of the day, it doesn't make any difference. The consumers have spoken. And around here, anyways, in Texas, they just have ripped out mm-hmm. bottle space. Like, you can't. I actually went to a grocery store last week, the biggest one, one of the biggest beer selling HEBs in Texas. And they had a little, like, rack up, like a wooden rack built by Shiner. And it had some mm-hmm. Shiner bombers in it. And the impact of, like, just the realization that there was a new bomber set being put there. I realized I hadn't seen that shit in two years. Like, it was just like, yeah. and only Shiner can do it. Everybody else had it told to fuck off. But yeah, yeah you just don't see the large format I, anymore. I don't think we, we got a little bit of large format towers in 2019. And those are still out there. Some of them. We got one drop of stuff we were super excited to get. And you know, some of that stuff sold for the company. And, so, and some of it's still on the shelf. I saw, I saw it weeks ago. Yeah, no, there's still some of my beer out on the shelf too <laughs> that I made three years ago. Well, so mistake seven in the book, I talk about like the, one of the biggest mistakes I made was trusting distributors to sell your beer. And that probably is misconstrued by some people. What I mean by that is not that they can't or don't, but that they can't, can't or don't alone. And so at least in all the distributorships that I worked with, the idea that you would just put it on a pallet and send it three states over and it would magically sell just isn't realistic. So you obviously dealt with a lot of smaller brands. I have one distributor who finally went away. They've been dying for years in the Dallas area that they finally got bought out. They wouldn't bring on people that didn't have a rep for a little while. There was kind of that, like if you Mm -hmm. weren't going to spend three days in the market each week, they weren't willing to do it. How did you deal with supplier understanding that they had to be involved in their success? And then obviously many of them not wanting to do that. Essentially, I mean, we never had, I don't say never, but rarely did we have somebody who had a rep in the area. I remember being horrified when we had a local brewery who was going into 70 Kroger stores and they were not going to hire a rep. 70? 70. 70. 70 Kroger stores. Sorry. I mean, that is a story unto itself. I mean, we basically... They had a rep. They had you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, they did have... It was... was, What we basically usually did, I mean, that was... We were looking for suppliers who did not need to send a rep there and who, you know, who really... It wasn't like they would trust us to sell their beer, but, you know, at the end of the day, we're buying it. We need to get, get it sold through. But that said, a lot of times, you know, when it would start to lose steam... We our orders would taper off and eventually stop. And that's kind of, I think, whether people meant to do it or not, that was kind of the strategy, it seemed, for breweries to go, like, well, now we're on to another state. I mean, again, I never really saw a brand that really, people tried sometimes, but eventually there's only so much pushing you can do from so many states away. You know, we had brands that, that did grow, that we did do well with. Our first brewery, we actually grew every single year. They We closed our fifth year with them that was they were up every single year but that said most of the time especially from out of state stuff they come in they get a big pop and it would just kind of taper off i think we're working now to keep brands to build them but pipeworks is a great example he comes down for festivals he stays in contact with some of our customers he does a great job but i mean his his beer sells very well by itself as well it's hard to figure out if anyone could figure out the combo of attention and keeping your brand in people's forefront without pissing them off and annoying them and kind of seeming desperate, I, I, I don't. I have not seen a brewery perfect that. Usually, there needs to be some natural pull through with the brand, at least in my limited experience. You guys have kind of a three tier system there too, as it sounds like, and then you have mm-hmm. like a, a, what do you call it, like a I guess exception for self distribution. So, yes. Everyone's got their own opinion on three-tier system. What do you think? Good, bad, mm-hmm. ugly? Should we keep it? I don't think it's really a choice, right? I mean, even if you got all we'll took away all the laws, I mean, no. If you, I mean, if you did, 
Yeah, I mean, nobody is legally forcing the majority of breweries to be with uh, a distributor. They choose to do so because they can't do it themselves or don't want to or don't or can't make as much money doing it. As far as franchise law goes and all those goofy laws that were allegedly written in the 1970s and 80s because these mom and pop distributors were so intimidated by these national corporations that, you know, could leave them at a moment's notice and they'd be financially ruined. You know, if, if they were so hard up, like, how did they get the legislature to write? those laws in the first place. But at the end of the day, however true that story is, the, the, the dynamic of the small mom and pop versus the big national brewer, now that dynamic is switched where most of the distributors are, are large companies and most of the breweries are small companies. There are exceptions. We're small. We were a small company. Um, we we're always small. These big national companies need protection against these small mom and pops from leaving them. I don't think that's true. In practice, usually I do think people can get out of their contract. But I, I mean, as far as the three-tier system goes, I don't think franchise law is really keeping it together. I think it's, I think it's just simple economics at this point. And I don't think that there's really much in the way of, you know, I, I know that distributors get a lot of shit. I won't say it's undeserved. I wouldn't have started Adina if I thought everything was going well in the middle tier. You know what I mean? Right. Like I, I get it. There's a lot that we thought we were going to change. That said, I, I think distributors can be a scapegoat sometimes for essentially what is a math problem and that there are right now just too many breweries in the market spending too much money trying to be way too big, trying to make back too large of an investment. Even if you had like your own rep who lived in the office, you know, like had one of those reps, even if you had someone like that who was working every single day to make sure that your brand was represented best possible. At the end of the day, if no one's buying it off the shelf because there's so much other stuff on the shelf, it just doesn't matter. I, I know, I trust me, I, I get it. And I think there's a lot of reasons, there's a lot of shitty stories that are 100% true. But when I look at my local market, and I look at the breweries that have closed, there's only one that I think the distributor had a hand in. If you ask him why did he close, it's because another fucking brewery moved in right down the street and took half his business. That's my perspective on it. It's that other, it's other breweries, I think, is is the real problem when it comes to why distribution sucks. And, and not that distributors do breweries any favors 99% of the time. I get it. I tried to be a good guy. I'm sure you can find plenty of breweries that think I'm a fucking asshole, that think I don't know what I'm doing, or that I only care about this kind of beer, or that I only have, I only want to sell that kind of beer. And at the end of the day, I mean, all I want to do is find good beer that's going to move off a shelf. You know, I drink the beer that we sell. It has to be good. I don't drink every beer. You know, every brewery needs to make at least one beer that I like, I think. At the end of the day, I, I don't want to represent anything I don't like, but it does have to sell. It's basically it. And it sounds like, well, gosh, that sounds like a very small percentage of breweries kind of fit that bill. And in my experience, that was what it was, was basically. And again, it wasn't enough for me to continue on owning the distributor. Even that strategy, I don't think, is guaranteed. I mean, like we were saying, Dauntless closed. You talked to Eddie at Starlight. They closed. He went to another distributor. They are still open. You know, in Ohio, we had two other distributors closed. They were kind of small on our side. The whole Shelton Network. Yeah, Shelton, class. yeah. I mean, it's it's not is if it's it's a lock solid strategy but i do think if people do it right you have the right combo of brands there's value that can be you know the breweries can get from a good distributor at the end of the day it's a, it's a challenge and i know that breweries don't want to hear bad news you know they want you it's when you shoot the messenger and <laughs> and you know frankly distributors don't want to be bears bad news i remember i had a local brewery that frankly made shitty beer and i i liked the guy i just we were selling him i just i couldn't i couldn't do it i couldn't tell him like hey Nobody wants to buy this because it doesn't taste good. I just said, hey, I think you'd be better off 
going back to self-distro. <laughs> it's hard. A lot of times people, we have emails and like, hey, as you guys stop ordering as much. I'm like, why? I'm like, well, because it, it didn't sell. Like, it did not. I don't want to buy it because I won't make any more money on it. I don't know what else to tell you. I want to make the magic happen, but, I mean, you talk about trying to be too big, over-promising. You know, early on, that was a huge mistake that I would make. Like, yeah, we can sell it. Yeah, we got it. And at the end of the day, there's only so much room on the shelf, and the customers only want what their customers are going to buy. Yeah. No, I, I get it. And that's something I was always hard for every supplier that I talked to, but also me, just to get my head around the whole idea is that I don't know if it's just inherent in the way that we understand it or if it's some zeitgeist that somehow goes through our collective consciousness, but every supplier thinks that it's outsourcing. Like, we're going to make it, you're going to sell it, and I don't got to fuck with it. And uh, it's, it's never the case. So Yeah, it's definitely, exa- you're exactly right. I mean, it's, it's just... Uh, the end of the day it's you know the beer doesn't sell and it's nobody's fault you know i success has many fathers but failure is an orphan think about that often all right well i'm going to take a quick break before i do we're going to talk shit about one mm-hmm. thing since i stopped okay. um, doing the outline that i used for the book and the beginning of the podcast mm-hmm. season i haven't really been talking shit about untapped in a while and you brought it up so technically it's your <laughs> yeah. fault so do you actually still or used to look at untapped rate beer or beer advocate to decide whether a brand was viable to bring on? Untapped, yes. All the time. But it sounds like a lot of yep. what your model, the beers that you were looking for were ones that were super popular and that were going to just sort of get Instagram ability, right? And so I guess that makes sense. Mm-hmm. How often were those ratings wrong, I guess, would be an interesting question. Or, or were they never wrong because they're based on popularity? I think that's a very astute question. I wonder what you would mean by wrong. Financially for you, like how often did you go like, oh, they have a four and a half on untapped and you bring them in and no one fucking buys it, so... Well, those bottled sours I told you about were all rated very highly on Untap. The um, Saint Arnoff or whatever. Well, no, 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 no. No, the um, the one-off stuff that we got from uh, around the country for we got it for a festival, and they were all very rated very highly. And we were very excited to have them. Unfortunately, they just didn't have the pull through. The okay. bombers did. Yeah. I mean, usually it wasn't hard to kind of triangulate, frankly, and to have a bit of a basic understanding of what we were doing. Like if you ordered. A, a pastry stout, and it was rated like 4.3. You knew it was going to taste very pastry stouty. Whether or not that meant it was well balanced, or that it was going to be, you know, have a ton of the adjunct flavor that was advertised on the can, and it would be sweet and high alcohol. That was the rating that you knew. That's why people were rating it that high. So as as far as how it was going to taste, usually I'll say this: stuff that's rated higher within the style usually is better. Although there is kind of a muddle in like kind of like the high threes. It's all, it all can kind of be, some of that stuff can be great. Some of it can be meh. Usually once you clear four, 3.9, it's usually pretty good. And usually when you go below 3.6, it's usually pretty bad. As far as our purchasing decisions, I will confess that it, it is a big part of it. Although usually if it's a brewery that we've heard of and it, we're excited about it and they make the styles that we want, I'm not super concerned with the untapped ratings, although usually they correlate pretty closely. But our customers would look for it. Drove me insane. 2018, I was trying to bring all these great brands that I liked a lot. I have two accounts in particular I can think about right now that would open up the phone and just look at it. Sitting there. And yeah. just, that would be the decision. But I mean, I'll tell you this, Kelly. I mean, it happened, sorry, last Thursday. I was up in, in accounts covering for uh, a sales rep. I mean, it happens all the time. I don't even notice anything. People just open up untapped and be like, oh, yeah, that looks good. Like I just the only information on there is the untapped rating and everything else. I just told I mean I told you the ABP, I told you the name, told you the style, 
you know, gave you the whole description. I mean, heck, a lot of times the untapped description is just the copy the brewery gave us that we put in the email. Mm-hmm. So there's not a whole lot of other information except for that score. And they're only doing it because that's what their customers are doing. And their customers are doing it. And here's why I will defend untapped, because there is a fuckload of beer out there. There's a ton of breweries out there. And some of them are good and some of them are bad. And at the end of the day, it's not perfect at all. But the customers, they have jobs. They have lives. They have a lot going on. And if they can get a distillation of other people's opinions to help them know if a beer is good or not, I get why other people wouldn't like it. I get why breweries hate it. But I feel I can see why the the customers use it. And I know that it's not what Untapped was designed to be. It wasn't supposed to be this. No, online beer reviews used to be reviews. And now it's just a couple words, sometimes some dumb words, 0.5 to 5 bottle cap. At the end of the day, I don't know what a perfect website would look like as far as beer reviews go. But I have to imagine that would piss people off, too. (laughs) If you you didn't have the best beer, you'd you'd be pissed. You'd be pissed that it was on there. You know, so it's just, uh, I don't, I don't defend untapped. I will not defend it because I know it pisses people off. But if you're asking me, do, do untapped ratings matter? Yes, a lot in, in business. And like I said, usually it correlates to a lot of success anyway, but it's a, it's a good piece of information to have. And it's something we, we would not pick up a brewery that had like a 3.4 untapped rating. There's just, there's no way. It would not matter. Would not matter. Even though, even if I liked it, you know, if I liked it, I'd drink it. I'll buy it. Doesn't stop me from from trying it. But the way the beer market is in 2023, and that was that was a hard lesson. That was a hard lesson to learn too. I'd heard of Untapped before. I'd never thought of it that way as being an arbiter of of what beer should sell and what beer shouldn't. It was, it was crazy. It was crazy to learn that. Part of why I do this podcast is to like get a diverse set of opinions and perspectives so that you can kind of blend those together and look at it. And so that is fascinating in a way that obviously you guys are looking at it from the consumer's perspective and the idea of like, well, yeah, you should educate the consumer or the retailer. It's kind of stupid. You should really shouldn't. You should give them what they want. You try to educate them. But I mean, you can't educate the consumer. He's already posted at his house there. Like at some point, you don't have a lot of control over what Untapped has on it. But my question would be, I don't have a lot of experience with Untapped in the last three years. Have you seen those normalize around some of the best beers? Because for sure, when I was you know really starting to take a look at it and getting super frustrated, it was like 16, 17, up to 19. It was mostly the worst beers would win. It was the weirdest thing. Like if you had great beer, you just didn't get rated highly. And so is it, just a guess, but is it more fair in your opinion now than maybe it used to be? I think that, I mean, I don't, like I said, I drink Belgian quads still to this day. I don't know what any of them are rated on untapped. I don't know what Two Hearted's untapped rating is. I don't know what Rothaus's untapped rating is i don't know i went on vacation i had high life and banquet i don't know what they're rated on uh, i think that when it comes to high quality beer i think there are if you're talking about if one hazy is 4.2 and one hazy is like 3.8 is there a tremendous difference and again if someone doesn't know untapped you're like well no there's not a tremendous difference between 4.2 and 3.8 what are you talking about <laughs> it's just four tenths of a point who cares i think that i've uh, there's a correlation i think between quality I don't think the customers are so stupid that I don't think that a 4.2 rated hazy IPA is going to be a bad beer. I like those. I I like hazy IPAs. I enjoy them. That's tasty. I don't care what most other kind of wacky styles are rated. I'm just, that's just not my game, but I will want to know from a business side what they're rated because it's a huge part of what the customer is experiencing. Now, like I said, I think that people should be focused back on beer education. 
that's something that I've been trying to instill in our sales team than I did time. It just, unfortunately, everyone is so busy right now because there's so much competition. There's so many people coming in. You only have so much time with these people. And if there was any way to kind of download all the grain bill and the hop bill and you know the history behind the style, and if I could just download that into someone's mind, <laughs> that would be great. You, unfortunately, you can't. And a lot of times it's just ABV, name of the beer, style of the beer, untap rating. Yes, no. Mm-hmm. One, two, five. What do you want? <laughs> you know, like yeah. And again, when there were fewer breweries, there was a lot more time for that kind of education. That's how I got my start. That was the fun part. I remember studying to go on sales calls. And I'm not saying people don't want to learn about beer now. And I'm not saying our salespeople don't do that. But um, it's definitely the case that we have less time to uh, educate people. And I think I do think that's a shame. I don't, I don't, it's one of those things, the difference between like my preference and, and just how the business has worked. I feel that I would prefer we talk more about fewer beers. But you know, at the end of the day, like you're not going to educate anyone who doesn't want to listen. I get it. So I do want to hear a little bit about how the industry changed and then what led to that decision to finally sell out. And so uh, mm-hmm. let's take a quick break and then we'll come back and wrap that up. Cool. Are you still paying shipping for your brewery's ingredients? That's really, really dumb considering that Brewery Direct offers free shipping on every single order. But maybe that'll work out for you. I mean, Donald Trump got elected president, Paula Abdul and Justin Bieber both had singing careers, Shaq managed to play ball real good, and Paris Hilton ended up not losing all of her family's money. But if you don't want to risk it, I'd call Brewery Direct. They've got a diverse selection of malted and unmalted grains, aseptic fruit purees, yeast, and even hops. And if you brew with adjuncts, they'd get you covered on that front too. What they don't do is charge you to ship it because they don't suck. Now serving 12 states and even Canada, your brewery needs Brewery Direct. So go check them out online at brewerydirect.com or at Brewery Direct at whatever social media whose algorithm you let control your habits. All right, thanks for sticking with us. So this is uh, when I want to really hear more of your opinion of kind of like, you know, how the industry changed from the beginning to the end and then what led that decision to, uh, you know, take a different approach you know obviously you didn't leave the industry it's like you're clearly not mm-hmm. angry with beer like i was when i sold and you didn't need to go to rehab for your emotional stress and that you dip, you went through so like talk to me about that so obviously you started with you know stars in your eyes and then when did the idea the sell kind of come about well i, I will say it stars in my eyes but i <laughs> thought i was being smart like i thought i was making a smart career decision by starting a new distributor. The phrase during the gold rush, the gold diggers didn't make money, the people who sold the pickaxes and the shovels were the ones who made money. I thought that's what I was doing. I was starting a business that was going to be useful during this brewery boom. And so five years later, when it hadn't really helped my career, you know, personally, I hadn't, was not drawing very much money at all from the company. I was looking for an opportunity. It was not just, oh, this nice, I, everything was going great, and this nice opportunity came along. I mean, I remember looking at my credit card statement and then looking at the business bank account and just deciding that something had to change. As far as what led up to that point, I've alluded to it a few times, but we definitely spent a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of energy on launching a local craft brewery into a large chain retailer without any support from that brewery. It was a contract brand. They treated that as a side project that just happened to, you know, get them tens of thousands of dollars more a month from me. And that was the end of it. And we didn't see any support from them. We didn't even seem to have anyone seem to want 
to let people know that they were doing all this. It sure seemed like they were kind of embarrassed that they were contract brewing. And so we had a lot of beer in our warehouse that I was spending money on that was, you know, we were sending people to 70 retail locations, delivering to those. We fundamentally changed how our delivery schedule went because those places would close at 9 or 10. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times we couldn't deliver to other stores because they weren't open yet when we were delivering to those stores. I think that did result in a lot of burnout. I had talked about my first employee that I had. who was a great sales rep. We talked about the guy who I hired from the bar. And I had one other guy who uh, started as a delivery driver. He ended up being our warehouse manager. I had those three guys who I hired in the first year. And then in the last year, I had only people who I had hired in the last year. Because I think that in that middle, I think we had a lot of people who were going to these stores trying to send them beer, trying to make a minimum order, and it just wasn't. We had issues with them not having the beer for us because of the scheduling, in part because they wouldn't brew the beer unless I ordered it. So they were waiting on me to basically make their production schedule because they didn't want to sit in any beer, any beer. And so basically, I, I had to buy it all. So it was a terrible, terrible system where basically they wouldn't talk to the, even talk to the contract brewer until I put in a purchase. So it ended up being kind of like a... You would end up having too much beer and then end up having no beer. The, the whole thing wasn't working. This was about summer 2021 when this all started coming to a head. I realized that I was spending way more money on beer than I, than I had any right to do. And I was basically not winning any friends at this brewery because they were upset that it wasn't higher. Fortunately, we picked up a few other good brands and, and we, we were able to kind of keep it going for about another, another year. But it, it, at the end of 2022, we weren't growing. We had some months that were just not, they weren't bad, but it wasn't good. And like I said, I had three sales reps and two drivers quit between Thanksgiving and Valentine's Day. And we only have five reps, two and a half drivers. That's a lot, <laughs> you know? So I had, and I had three reps who turned in their notice before I had a single replacement. They were different situations. You know, one guy was going to do just objectively a better job, but I knew he was overqualified. It was tough to lose him. Uh, one guy was a very good friend. He was just burnt out. And there was a woman who had some personal stuff going on in her life, and she was very burnt out. So, I mean, I'm not really upset, mostly, that everyone kind of left at the same time. I don't think they didn't plan it, but it was, it was very it was very frustrating. Fortunately, two of their replacements are still with the uh, the purchasing company. So uh, we ended up getting some good, good replacements there. But at the end of 2022, after, you know, COVID pandemic, which for distributors it was not as big a deal, frankly, because we didn't have a we didn't have a retail location. It did hurt some of our customers, but it did also kind of help our customers sell a lot of packaged beer, which was our strength anyway. But it, it still was there was you know you were basically March 2020. I thought that it was over. I thought it was completely over by June 2020. We were breaking sales record, and that was the thing is we grew 65 percent in 2020, and we grew 115 percent in 2021. In 2022, we actually didn't increase our sales, but our this was in part because of what kind of beer we were selling. Hmm. In 2022, we actually grew our gross profit by a ton. And that was basically because we were selling a lot more high-end stuff and less of the chain beer stuff. That brewery, by the way, we ended up getting rid of for not a lot of money. <laughs> but yeah. for some money, some money before I ended up selling, which was part of the plan. I basically looked and I looked at what I could do and I talked to a number of people, including Eddie. Um, this was around the time he was on your show. He uh, he talked to me about it. And, you know, it was basically the idea was I didn't know if I was going to be valuable to anyone in two years. I didn't know if I was going to I could 
you know, we could keep the company going, but I didn't know if I could keep going. And I had a, uh, in this is probably bearing a little bit, but in November of 2022, I, I had my second child. And that was basically kind of a wake up. I don't know why the first one wasn't, <laughs> but, you know, basically I really had to look at I didn't want to have to have a solution that was going to put a bunch of other people who had put their trust in me in jeopardy. So in two years, maybe the only thing I could do was sell the brands for whatever I could, sell the equipment for whatever I could, fire everybody and just close up shop and hope I didn't lose too much. I mean, that was the only lever I'd be able to pull. I got approached by a distributor who was kind of our, I actually, just sorry, Kelly, I can't, I, I don't think I can tell that who it was. I was approached by one distributor that wanted to buy us. It was a smaller distributor, but the deal was not quite, it would have involved dropping too many suppliers. And I didn't think we would keep enough of our employees. Luckily, there was a distributor that was coming into the state they had a lot of the same brands that we had uh, in other states, and they had a lot of the brands that we wanted. They were larger. They were willing to, you know, the deal was something that I thought would work. And again, everyone was, would be taken on. I mean, we didn't keep every single supplier, but we kept a lot. And, you know, I wasn't, a lot of the suppliers, I mean, essentially, we're only going to pick them up if they're going to sell anyway. So it's not as if a lot of that stuff wasn't a big deal. But some of the local ones, you know, really did rely on us. Uh, and I didn't want to, I wanted to keep those, except for the one that I obviously had already gotten rid of. But that was basically it. And I don't know, it would have been very tough to compete against the brands they were bringing. It would have been very tough to compete against the organization that they have. And now it's an organization that I'm a part of. And uh, so I stayed on as general manager of Ohio. Our All of our reps stayed on. And, you know, we're still operating right now out of our warehouse. Uh, we're going to get a warehouse in Columbus that will be set up. And then I'll be moving to Columbus where my wife's family is from and where uh, I went to school up there. So I'll be moving back to Columbus. Well, it sounds like you kind of came out ahead then on that one, ultimately. Well, <laughs> you know, I think at the end of the day, you know, I don't want to get too much into the finances of it, but nobody who put their trust in me is getting screwed in this. And I mean, basically, our investors are making their money back. All of our suppliers' bills were paid. We had no loans to pay back, which was nice. Actually, that's not true. I did have an EIDL. That was covered, that I was able to cover. I still actually have a lot of the equipment that's still being used by the person company right now that I frankly is just kind of up in the air, but uh, someone's going to have to buy it at some point. Everything hasn't quite closed out yet. I'm kind of in a weird limbo period where I'm spending my days working for them and then still trying to kind of wrap everything up with Adina. Eventually, once everything's closed out, you know, Adina will just be, you know, go away or maybe we'll, um, maybe I'll keep the website for um, posterity's sake, but as far as license has uh, been switched over, we now operate under their name. Everything's switched over to them. The idea of uh, you know enjoying what you're doing, being passionate about it, working your ass off, but scraping by, you know, and not not being able to hit that next level where it kind of got like profitably easy. I absolutely have experienced that, and the amount of relief yeah. that I got the day that I sold is hard to quantify. Did you have that experience at all? It is kind of weird because I just went straight into like the the day I turned the license in, I was immediately shifted my focus into being the general manager mm. of the new entity and uh, and basically just those obligations and how that was going to go. So I have felt a tremendous amount of relief. It is mostly on bigger worries, day to day stuff. I think I've frankly been busier, but it's nice because. I'm not busy putting out as many fires. It's, and again, 
you probably can relate to this. So many more tasks are being completed without my direct input just because it's a larger organization. For example, fintech. <laughs> I was freaking out about it. Like, we don't have, we need to get all this stuff taken care of. Like, no, we have people for that. The They're going to take lady. care of yeah. it. Right. Yeah. And it's just like, oh, okay, cool. And like, people will ask me stuff. I'm like, I don't know because that's not what I do anymore. You know, it's like, like this. you'll have to ask the person whose job it is to know that rather than before it's like, well, if Michael doesn't know, nobody does. Uh, yeah. You know, unless it was about something specific to the warehouse or something specific to the brands we were bringing in, I had to know about it. And it's that's not the case anymore. So there's been a ton of relief. And it, it is nice to get a... Now, I was able to pay myself somewhat regularly, not a lot. <laughs> I will say, I mean, just frankly, you know, we were profitable enough to pay back the investors just a little bit during... When I was still at Dina's, we did, I wanted to make some payment to them. So we paid a little bit back to them and I was able to pay myself enough to survive, you know, for the five years that we were running. But it has been nice to just on Friday, every other Friday is payday. And that's nice. That's, yeah. that's a new thing that was not the case at all with Adina at all. You know, once everything closed out, cause I haven't really been able to make any uh, distributions to the owners or anything like that. Uh, we're still trying to wait till everything's closed up. But after that happens, I think I'll probably be, I think maybe make like $8 more than if I would have just stayed a sales rep over the five years. But I now that, but I never, nobody ever would have made me general manager of a company that, of, of an entire state. Yeah. If I would have just stayed a street level sales rep for that entire time. And uh, it was a great opportunity. I would have been miserable the whole time. I remember that I was a, just a street level sales rep before I started this. I remember just being impatient, just couldn't wait to get to do this. And it never, it was sometimes exhausting. I was always worried about what was going to happen, but the actual work was the best work I'd ever done. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that is definitely, I don't want to encourage anyone to try and do this, but at the end of the day, I really did like running a business. And I'm just saying like, what do you do? I own a craft beer distributor. Like, yeah, you can't replace that. You know, like you can't, it's just like, oh, well, I'm a brain surgeon. Like, oh, okay. That sucks. Like, sorry. <laughs> Sounds like you went to school for a while. Uh, no, it, it, you know, again, that was that was a huge part of the appeal. And But I'm, I'm very happy to be, you know, just, I think that, you know, I was 31. 31 when I quit my job to start this. You know, I'm 36 now. I'll be 30, I'll probably be 37 when this airs. The uh, chance to do this again does exist. The desire to do so. Is not there yet, but you never know, Kelly. I might, I might be on this show again when you I, when I start another brewery. <laughs> you start your whole, your whole other show, like what to do after. Oh uh, no, yeah, no, I um, I, the it's it is funny. It's just one of those things you just can't. Do you ever think about starting another brewery? Mm -mm. <laughs> I have, I have actually rabbit holed the concept of what it would be like to maybe do like a singular. Well, so it would be like a a singular contract brewed brand, and then two offshoots one non-alcoholic and one seltzer like all the same brand and i kind of rabbit hold in my opinion like how you could market that and make that work in a different way and i just was not even remotely interested in doing it but that's close well, let me let me know if it comes to ohio okay yeah i will <laughs> no I've, I've thought about the idea of doing a and i'm not going to do it but i've thought about the idea of doing something similar and it's you just then you're like, well, you still got to have the meetings at the end of the day. You still got to make the sales call. Someone's got to sell it. Someone's got to deliver it. That money's not going to come from nowhere. I am not going to do that again, but I definitely am interested in kind of what your 
do you have a favorite memory? Like, was there any specific thing that happened that you're like, oh, that was like the best day? What, what was your best day as an owner of a distributor house? Best day. That's, I, I, always, I did always love the events. I remember there was a couple brands when we had the launch events. It was you could really tell people were excited that, that this beer had come in. I can't think of a specific one. There were just times where you could tell the company was leveling up and the beer we were selling was good. And that was always the best. Like you just find, I mean, Ninja vs. Unicorn is one of my favorite beers. It's also one of our best sellers. It's that kind of synergy between, hey, this is my career is improving. And also this beer is amazing. That stuff I remember distinctly. I remember when we had single cut and it was what everyone wanted. And Weird and Gilly couldn't taste better. And I, after a hot day of pulling that stuff up, I, had a, I rented a U-Haul. This is not my favorite day, but it's a, it's a good memory. I rented a U-Haul to pick it up off of a dock, like for a third-party freight, basically. People had ordered it, and this is something stupid I used to do. I would just send, put the orders in before the beer had even gotten in. And then the freight company would delay it. And I would uh, then just go pick it up from from the uh, the terminal. For whatever reason, I took a U-Haul because I didn't think it could fit in all, all in our van. Uh, all the normal truck rental places were closed. So there's a U-Haul place next door. Warehouse, I got in a U-Haul. They're not designed to take beer. No. It's terrible. But at least they loaded it up right. So like it was, it was, it still was rocking, but at least they had the, the pallet. So I, anyway, those things are not dock high. So I had to manually downstack three pallets worth of beer up onto our dock and i thought this would take me like a couple hours i drive up to from cincinnati to columbus to get the beer and bring it back it's like 1 30 or something like that by the time i got done with this and i was i was wearing like a button-up shirt in jeans because i'd been making sales calls and i hadn't had time to go home and change and uh, i just remember though i was so happy that i had gotten the beer ready for delivery like in a couple hours it was going to be delivered a couple hours. i was just so happy that the customers were going to get the beer and I just cracked one of those beers open, and it just tasted so fucking good. And even though it was like probably like 50 degrees, and you know, it was just, I just remember that the feeling of accomplishment. Maybe that's, maybe I'm a little crazy that that's my, the memory I'm thinking of. But, uh, that I, working hard, drinking some good beer, somehow it all kind of works out. Those are the best memories I have, and the people who, who helped make that possible. Here's to having more of those, and this time without the stress of yeah. trying to figure out how to pay the rent and the light bill. And at least, <laughs> at least you aren't the one renting the U-Haul next time, right? We will never ever pick up beer in a U-Haul again. That's not going to happen. <laughs> yeah. Is there anything that you want to make sure that everybody remembers about Adina? Like, what was? What do you want everyone's like thought process when they think of you in that first first distributorship you had? I, I definitely, you know, we really did try to get the best beer out there to people that the customers could not only enjoy, but they could sell and they could help, they could help their businesses as well as make their customers happy. I think that was, you know, we really, I know people probably can say, well, this one time Medina, you know, did this. And I, I don't think we had a lot of negative stories, but you know, I think most of the time people had a very positive attitude about us because we really did. Like we were talking about with the St. Arnolf thing, you know, we, we did stand by these brands. We, you know, I, maybe to a fault, took an L on a large number of products that wasn't the best. I hope people think of Adina as, as a distributor that had tried to keep everyone's best interests in mind and really tried our best to improve the beer scene, to, to take care of beer, and to, at the end of the day, leave the craft beer scene a little bit better. 
And I, I think we did that. Yeah. Well, I absolutely appreciate you sharing this story with us. It seems like that was a short two hours, but we just spent a lot of time talking about all manner of things in the industry, both you know, yeah. good and bad. But I think there was a lot to learn, especially if you're a brewery considering opening and more importantly, considering distributing, like definitely mm-hmm. some things in there that they needed to know. So I appreciate you sharing it. I appreciate probably most of all that you took the opportunity to you know, look at your life. And with a second kid, that that was a big part. I have two children and that, that mm-hmm. was a big part of why uh, when I left the industry and I was just like, I wasn't broke, but I needed, I needed to like create a future for these guys. They're both going to go to college. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's a lot going on. So that responsibility and taking seriously is important. So I think that's cool. Yeah. And I think that's something that people really should think about uh, when they're thinking about opening a business. It sucks. It's not fair, but it really does depend on what part of your life you're in when you should open a business. Well, you're not the only one doing it, right? Even if your family's not there <laughs> moving pallets around, they're still responsible and it's, it's, all, it's all one thing. So again, I really appreciate it. I'm going to let you get out of here. I will definitely put some contact stuff in the show notes. Uh, hopefully people will mm-hmm. buy all the beer you guys sell in, in Ohio, anywhere in, in the mm-hmm. entire state and uh, keep you the yeah. you're accustomed to. Kelly, thank you very much. I uh, love the show, by the way. Thanks for being part of it. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks a fuckload for sticking around, guys. What my guests and I do here wouldn't be possible without your curiosity. And balancing the toxic positivity in the crapper industry with a hefty dose of reality could not be more important. If you're thinking about starting a brewery, I honestly wish you the best of luck. If you've already got one and you're trying to decide if you should keep it, I wish you the best of love. Maybe you shuttered or sold your beer business and you're well into the next positive and hopeful stage of your life. In that case, I'll buy you a beer or seven. I'm always on the hunt for great stories of other breweries that have felt the sting of struggle. I'm always opening to answering questions and helping in any way that I possibly can. So feel free to reach out. Email is easiest at freeplaykelly. Oh, and if you're inclined to support the show, there are a few ways you can go about that. None better than sharing your favorite episode with your favorite friend, followed very closely by buying a copy of my 2020 book, How Not to Start a Damn Brewery. And last but never least, you can support the businesses that have supported the show. I truly hope this show has made you think, made you feel, and made you better at your career. And of course, I hope it's taught you a little something about how not to start a damn brewery. Free play. Media. Media.